0: Waking up from a bad dream. Riding a bike for the very first time. Going into a nursing home for the very first time. Talking to an adult behind the cash register at a store or a restaurant. Temptation when your friends are behaving badly. Sitting in the principal's office after an incident at school, at a recital, at a school performance, at an athletic competition, one thing profoundly affects every single one of those examples. The presence of a loving parent. The presence of a loving parent, when that parent is close, when that parent is running alongside of you, when that parent is watching you, they have their eye on you, when you know that parent has your back, it can change everything about your perspective on and your experience of a particular situation. But when that parent is absent... When you remove them from the equation, when you are maybe unaware of their proximity, that pendulum can swing the opposite way in terms of your perspective and your experience. Now, if you think back to your childhood and you think back to your teenage years, can you relate to this? Do you know this to be true? The presence of a loving parent. Ever had to go to, up to the catch register when you were a kid and your parent wasn't with you? <laughs> <laughs> Ever going to a nursing home for the first time? Right? Ever been somewhere and your friends are behaving badly and, but there's your dad or mom real close to you? <laughs> you, you learn to restrain yourself, right? You go, oh, uh, maybe I shouldn't do what the rest of those guys are doing. Here's mom or dad's kind of not too far away from me. It changes everything. If you think back, I think that you can relate and you can see that. And you see it around you. The profound effect of the presence of a loving parent. Now this morning, through the inspired words of Psalm 16, I believe that David wants to encourage us with this same idea. King David, David and Goliath David, that David. Now it's, it, this could sound like an exaggeration, but I sincerely believe this truth... What we're going to talk about this morning, this truth can radically and wonderfully change everything, everything about your perspective and your experience in any and every situation. Game changer. No doubt about it. Easy. Game changer. This. Turn to Psalm 16 if you haven't already. I know most of you have. So as we talked about last time, Almost half of the psalms, since we're in the psalms in this reading plan, almost half of the psalms, these are songs, of course. Psalms is a is a kind of song. Half of these psalms that we find here in the Old Testament book called psalms were written by David, King David. 73 to be exact. Now, some of these psalms, as we also talked about last week, some of them call the listeners or the singers, those singing, to wisdom. They call you to have wisdom, right? Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, walk in the way of sinners, right? That's Psalm 1. It's a a wisdom psalm. Other psalms express grief. They are psalms of lamentation. They give voice to to those deep feelings of hurt, sadness. Still others known as imprecatory psalms, call for God's judgments to be poured out on the songwriter's enemies, who are often God's enemies as well. But as we learned last time, the majority of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are focused on, or they include, very clear elements of worship, of praise, of celebration and honoring God as God. It's not hard to find those. They're all over this book. So as you listen here to Psalm 16, to David's words, think about how we might classify this psalm. What kind of psalm is this one? Psalm 16. This is what David writes, or maybe sung at some point, because they were meant to be sung, right? This is what David writes. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, that is the drink offerings of those gods, I will not pour out. I will not, and I will not take their names, the names of those gods upon my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. And in the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not, you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol, to the grave. You will not let your holy one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen? Amen. What a beautiful psalm. What a powerful psalm. But I want you to look there in that last verse. Do you see that there in that very last verse? Verse 11. We read about the presence of a loving parent. Did you hear it? The presence of a loving parent as followers of Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, if you are a disciple, a student, an apprentice, if you are a Christian, if you have been born again, then we are the only human beings on this planet who truly know God as our Heavenly Father. Isn't that wonderful? It's amazing. That's not to say that others actually like truly know Him as something else, but many know of Him. They even, many address Him as Father without actually experiencing a new birth. But if you have truly been born again by God's grace, through faith, then the God to whom David sings in this psalm is now your Father through Jesus. Astounding, isn't it? The God of David is your father through Jesus. Through Jesus, the one who is both the son of David and the son of God. So again, in verse 11, what we're reading about is the presence of a loving parent. But, but notice how often David refers to God's presence or God's proximity in this psalm. Look at verse 1. Like a, like a nearby cave in the midst of a fierce storm. Verse 1, in you I take refuge. David is running to God. In you I take refuge. Verse 8, I have set Yahweh always before me. Verse 8, because He is at my right hand. Verse 11, in your presence. Verse 11, at your right hand. I would argue that the presence of God, this idea of the presence of God, and specifically confidence in the presence of God. This is kind of one of many psalms that we might call psalms of confidence. This is a psalm of confidence in the presence of God. This idea of the presence of God is, I believe, the key theme of this entire psalm. But let me do this. Let me break this down and show you how David is using this theme to encourage his listeners to instruct us how God wants to instruct us here. Take a look on the screen. So first, in verses 1 through 6, I believe David is talking about, number one, the value of God's presence. In verses 7 and 8a, that's the first kind of phrase of verse 8, I see David writing about, number two, the practice of God's presence. And then finally, the last half of verse 8 and all the way down to verse 11, I believe David is extolling number three, the blessings of God's presence. Let's take some time to unpack each of those points as we kind of move through the text itself. First, think with me about the value of God's presence. It is incredibly instructive and convicting that more than half of this psalm stresses The incomparable value of God. What is David emphasizing in verses 1 through 6? Just scan over it again. Look at verses 1 through 6. What is he emphasizing here? It's not difficult. He's he's emphasizing that God is the most important thing in his life. God is the most important thing in his life. Now that's easy for us to say. But do our lives actually reflect that fact? If we were to write a song, would we use the words, the same ideas? Would we, would we burst out with the same passion that David exemplifies here? Is God the most important thing in your life? That's what David's saying here. Look at how he says it. If he is in trouble, he will run to God. If there is anything good in his life, it has come from God. If people are seeking to walk in righteousness, he will join them in praising God. If others are running after idols, he will remain devoted to God. Why? Because as we read in verse 5, Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. Now what exactly does that mean? That doesn't really hit us today in the 21st century in the same way that it would have impacted the first readers of this psalm. The original readers of this psalm, the listeners of this psalm, would have recognized even that word cup, as as we see in in several other passages in Scripture, even that word cup, they would recognize this language here as the language of land allotment. Land allotment. Real estate allotment. Just as the Israelites under Joshua, you remember this? They inherited certain portions of the promised land. When Joshua went in, took the mantle, the mantle was passed from Moses to Joshua. He brought the nation of Israel into the land of promise, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. Right? They came in just as that took place, Right? that they inherited certain portions of that land, just as the lines, the boundary lines fell by lot, four different clans, as we read in in Numbers and Joshua, so that their family inheritance was determined by God, so too has David been given something incredibly valuable. He's using this language. In fact, he's been given something far, far more valuable than any allotment in the land. And what has he been given? He's been given the one who created the land and gives the land itself. God is better than the land. Way, way better than the land. And David recognizes that. So he knows this. He's using the language. He's using the imagery of land allotment to describe something far, far better. David is saying here, imagine the lot falling for you in this land allotment process. Imagine the lot falling for you on the best piece of real estate you could ever hope to have. Fertile lands... Right, Good soil, abundant water, multiple water sources, great wells, green grass, fruitful trees, encircling mountains. Think about this. Beautiful views, abundant provision, amazing protection. These are the pleasant places that David is writing about in verse 6, aren't they? These are the pleasant places but David's beautiful inheritance as he says in verse 6 is is not a piece of land is it it's god it's god himself this is all David needs this is all David wants is god himself so if we go back to if we're going to go move forward sorry if we're going to go move we're going to move forward here to talk about this practice of god's presence in the next point it is critical that we first establish the value of His presence. You will not practice what you do not find valuable. Now, maybe you grew up and your parents forced you to practice the piano or practice some instrument, right? Or do something that you were kind of forced to do. That doesn't always end up great, does it? Sometimes that just makes a kid bitter, you know, and doesn't want to keep doing that. Sometimes it's fine. But when... The student wants to learn when that student finds it incredibly valuable that they're driven themselves to say, I want to learn this instrument. I want to learn this skill. I want to get better at this sport. When they want to do it, it, it changes everything. David desires God. He is, he is making clear the value of what he's talking about here. If, as I mentioned before, this idea of the presence of God is going to radically and wonderfully change everything about both your perspective and your experience in any and every situation, then you must esteem God and His presence with you as the most valuable, the most treasured, the most precious reality in all the world. It doesn't work 50%. It doesn't work 75%. This is not something you dabble with. You will not find any benefit to practicing the presence of God if you do not value properly the presence of God. God Himself. If He is not the most important thing to you, That's what David is saying here. If God is just one of many good things in your life, He's stuck in that God box along right next to all of your other boxes, then His presence may not be any better or any worse than the present reality of those other benefits. Whatever cylinders are hidden that day, whatever's going your way that day, whatever other good thing is Kind of taking up your, the air in the room that day for you. God may just be one of many, but it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. But when you embrace the fact that nothing compares to God, His presence becomes absolutely essential. So how exactly does David speak here of practicing God's presence? Why do I keep using that phrase? Well, look again at his first statement in verse 8. A simple statement. David writes, I have set the Lord, again, all capitals, L-O-R-D. It's a translation of the divine name of God. The four letters in Hebrew, we believe are translated best Yahweh. A divine personal name of God given to the people. Not just generic God, but Yahweh. He says, I have set Yahweh always before me. Now here's a good question to think about is David setting in this as he talks here is is David setting God someplace where God wasn't before? When he says I'm setting God was he setting God someplace where he wasn't before? Well maybe no and yes. Maybe no and yes. As David wrote in Psalm 139 verse 7, take a look here on the screen, Psalm 139 verse 7, he said, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? You see, David believed what we believe today, that God is always everywhere present. There's no place that you can go where God is not. Do you, do you believe that? He's everywhere. He's everywhere, right? We, we call it, in theology, we call it omnipresence. It means He's all-present. You know, all the time, everywhere. He's, he's present in that way. David believed that as well. David, As David confirms in the next phrase of verse 8, because He is at my right hand. But that's not just a statement about the fact that God is present everywhere. When David says, He is at my right hand, he's talking. He's making a statement about the attentive presence of God. The attentive presence of Israel's good and gracious God. He's talking about God's favor on him. About a relationship. Not just the reality of a creator God who's everywhere present. This is presence in a different way. But again, what does David mean when he writes, I have set Yahweh always before me. One thing that's helpful here is understanding that the word translated presence in verse 11. In Hebrew, panim. Panim literally means before God's face. It is translated lots of different ways. It's a really interesting word. But this presence that you see, it means before God's face. Now, presence this idea could be could mean many things in the old testament even the psalms talking about god's presence could mean before his throne in heaven it could mean in the tent or temple later to be built in jerusalem where his presence dwelt in a special way as he promised the israelites he would do over the ark of the covenant but ultimately this idea simply means before god's face so David is actually also writing about the presence of God when he writes this in Psalm 27 verse 8. Take a look. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Yahweh, do I seek. That is, I seek your presence. Panim, it's the same thing. I seek your presence. God is telling him, seek me, seek my presence. The writer of Psalm 105, take a look again, you see it there on the screen, calls God's people to do the same thing, to pursue the same prize. Seek Yahweh and His strength. Seek His presence continually. What is David doing but that? When he says, I have set Yahweh always before me. He's seeking the presence of God continually. But pastor, you just said God is always everywhere. Like, didn't Paul say in the New Testament, in Him we live and move and have our being? Even quoting like Greek poets who kind of got that idea as well. What do we mean by this? There's something beyond just the fact that God is there. There is a seeking In terms of attention given. So I asked you before, is David setting God someplace where God wasn't before? God was there before. David may simply not have noticed Him. David may not have been focused on Him. David may have neglected to see Him because David was distracted. Because David was looking somewhere else. God was always there. But it doesn't mean that David was always in God's presence in this way. In the seeking of the presence. In setting Yahweh always before Him. This is exactly what David is doing when he writes, I have set Yahweh always before me. He is seeking to align his perspective on reality with the reality of God's presence with him. Let me say that again. Practicing the presence of God means to align your perspective on reality with the reality of God's presence with you. Over 400 years ago, a monk named Brother Lawrence spoke this way about this practice. He said this, I make it my business only to persevere in his holy presence. He has to work to persevere in the presence of God, wherein Brother Lawrence says, I keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard to God which I may call an actual presence of God, or to speak better, here's a little clearer, this is an habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God, which often causes in me joys and raptures inwardly, and sometimes also outwardly, so great, that I'm, u- I'm forced to use means to moderate them and prevent their appearance to others. Right, can you imagine this cloistered monk right somewhere and he's he starts bursting out laughing because he's so delighted by the presence of his God with him. He's like, Oh, I've gotta learn to kinda tamp it down a little bit. (laughs) I've gotta keep it in check a little bit because when he's meditating on God's presence with him, when that secret conversation of the soul is happening with God who is so close to him, that fond regard is taking place, he's moved deeply. Things change. The beloved, that beloved, the, the beloved book, compiled from his letters and conversations with others, was later entitled "The Practice of the Presence of God." Maybe you've heard of that. It's one of the it would be called considered a spiritual classic, spiritual Christian devotion book, book of devotion, "The Practice of the Presence of God." Now, much closer to our time in the first half of the 20th century, uh, a missionary named Frank Laubach reflected on this same practice in his essay entitled, The Game with Minutes. He wrote this, take a look. Practicing the presence of God is not on trial. It's already been proven by countless thousands of people. Indeed, the spiritual giants of all ages have known it. Christians who do it, they practice the presence of God today. Those who do it today become more fervent and beautiful and are tireless witnesses. Men and women who had been slaves of vices have been set free. That's high praise for the practice, isn't it? What was David doing when he fled to God for refuge? As described in verse 1 of this psalm. He was practicing the presence of God. Fleeing to God as his refuge. He was setting the reality of Yahweh before himself. That flight to God was the result of seeking God's face. Of seeking God's presence. It's the same thing he was doing when guided in verse 7. Right. Look at verse 7, right before where he says, I've set the Lord always before me, I've set Yahweh always before me. In that verse, verse 7, he's describing this practice of seeking and receiving God's counsel both day and night. doesn't mention the day, but he says also in the night. So you get the sense that during the day... He's receiving counsel from God. In the night, God is working through his heart to give him instruction as he lays there, as he thinks about God's presence with him. This is part of what he's doing in seeking it. He goes on, therefore, to expand and saying, this is what I'm doing, I'm setting Yahweh always before me. To regularly set the reality of God before oneself means also regularly setting the reality of God's Word before oneself. And as we do that, we are reminded of who God is. We don't have to set before us a generic God, do we? We don't have to set before us the higher power of AA. Right? We don't have to set before us the ecumenical God that people like to say, well, it's all the same God. You just call them different names. No, 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 no. We can set before us the God who created all things the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can set before us the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because He has revealed Himself to us in that way. And so what David is saying here, for him to write, I have set Yahweh always before me, is really him also writing, I have set Yahweh's goodness always before me, isn't it? I have set Yahweh's power always before me. I have set Yahweh's faithfulness always before me. I have set Yahweh's justice always before me. I have set Yahweh's wisdom and His commands and His promises always before me. And guess what? If you do that, if a person does that, he or she is going to experience, number three, the blessings of God's presence. Remember what we talked about. Let me, let me keep going here. When you read this psalm, there is absolutely no lack of blessing. Described here. <laughs> like, you can find almost in every verse, there is some blessing. There is some radically wonderful impact being made in David's life because of the presence of God with him. Broadly speaking, if we were to kind of group these things together, I see three main blessings David is experiencing as he practices God's presence, as he sets Yahweh before himself, as he aligns himself, his reality, his perspective on reality with the reality that the God of Israel, the God God of the covenant, the creator God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with Him. Present there. Three broad categories here. The first we could describe as reassurance or confidence. That's the blessing. He's reassured. He's confident. Look at verse 8. I have set Yahweh always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. That's a word we find all throughout the Psalms. It means um, to be moved, it means to slip, or not slip, right? To be moved, to slip, to to be troubled. It can mean that idea as well. Here we find it translated: "I shall not be shaken." So we find that, comp- that that expression of confidence. We find that same confidence here in, ver- in chapter 16 or Psalm 16 verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. Because God will rescue him from death. That's what we see in verse 10. God will rescue him from the grave. Da- David can write at the end of verse 9, "My flesh also dwells secure. I feel secure, right?" In terms of my living in this world through this body, I feel secure. Yeah, my heart is glad and my whole soul, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I know that God will not let me slip and stumble. I know that God won't let me be shaken. He's going to deliver me from this. This is David's confidence. This is his reassurance. This is why the song opens the way that it does in verse 1. For in you I take refuge. A second blessing that we see here that flows from David's practice of God's presence is the guidance he receives. He's receiving guidance. We saw that in verse 7 where David talks about God's counsel, God's instruction. We also see that in verse 11 where David affirms, You make known to me the path of life. God is guiding him. He's instructing him on the path of life. It is truly amazing how a sincere sense of God's presence with you can inform and correct and inspire the choices you make. It does. David testifies of that very thing, of that wonderful reality here in this psalm. Finally, a third category. It's hard to miss the fact... That a, a direct result of David's recognition of God's presence with him is joy. He is so glad. Surely you got that sense, right? You heard that in the psalm. It, it just it just oozes out of this psalm. This sense of joy. Verses ten and eleven are some of the clearest and most powerful verses in all Scripture when it comes to the fullness of joy that a person can experience because of the reality of God and the reality of God's presence with us. God is not just a distant and disinterested deity. He's not just a character in a fairy tale we call the Bible, that some people call the Bible. God is not just a theological construct, an abstract idea that helps you feel better about yourself, that gives some meaning or purpose to your life. God is real. And when you know that God, and you know that He is with you, right near you, right by you, upholding you, carrying you, loving you, watching you, walking alongside of you, you'd have to be dead for it not to change you. You'd have to be spiritually dead for it not to change you. Because no one walks away from proximity with God like that, experiencing that unchanged. There is fullness of joy. David exults in verse nine. My heart is glad. He says, my whole being rejoices because God is at my right hand because he's here. He's with me. Reassurance, guidance, joy. These are just three. These are just a few. Of the blessings that come from the reality, not just the reality of God with you, but your apprehension, your grasping on to the reality that God is with you, that He is right there next to you, even in the worst moments of your life. Aren't all of these blessings, even these three reassurance, guidance, joy, aren't all of these the blessings so many of us enjoyed as children? When, especially in those hard or scary times, we were blessed by the presence of a loving parent. We had reassurance. Dad's here. Mom's here. We had guidance. I better not do that. <laughs> Dad's watching me right now. And that's uh, sobering me up. <laughs> I'm realizing this is not a good choice. Uh, I want to listen to my Mom. I trust her. She loves me. I want to listen to her. She cares about me. Joy, right? That we can experience that. When you are there and you've worked hard at the spelling bee or the school play or whatever and you walk out and you do it and you see that loving face of mom or dad or both sitting there in that audience, smile comes to your face. Maybe you feel strengthened, right? Can you imagine going there And you do those performances. You do whatever it is. Everybody else says, oh yeah, my dad was here. And Imagine no parent ever comes to any of your things. You look in the audience. Always an empty seat. Maybe where your parent was supposed to be. Heartbreaking, right? Heartbreaking. But go the opposite of that. When that parent is there. That presence of a loving parent is there. It can change everything. It's so meaningful. It's so powerful. This is what we have here. This is how David is encouraging us. To the, to the degree, let me say this, to the degree, brothers and sisters, reassurance, guidance, and joy, to the degree those blessings are in a truly meaningful way, missing from your everyday life, I believe it is evidence that you are neglecting or you are distracted from the Reality of God's presence with you, with us, His precious children because of Jesus. You may be looking to other things and saying, this is the problem of my life. If I just had this situation work out with my finances, if I had this situation work out with my schedule or at work, if I had this relationship out of my life for good, right? Or if I had this relationship, I had this relationship with this person, everything would be better, right? We can go through all these what ifs, what ifs, and say, you know, this is why I might think my relationship with God is out of whack, and yet we are neglecting The very thing that David is teaching us and the Holy Spirit is encouraging us through the inspiration of the Word towards this morning, that is to set God always before us. To set God always before us wherever we are, whatever we're doing. So I put that question to you. What would it look like for you personally to set Yahweh always before you? What is that going to look like for you In the coming hours and days, what is that going to look like to you? To practice His presence as David is exemplifying here, what is that going to look like in your life? Maybe it will mean first a time of confession and realignment in your life in light of the fact that God should be your greatest good. And something else now is your greatest good. Maybe it will mean more thoughtful meditation on how the reality of God converges with the reality of your needs. Maybe you realize too that when you get up in the morning, you're just out the door and you are you are like locked in 70 miles an hour into your day and you have not taken even 60 seconds to align yourself with the reality that there is a God in heaven who loves me. And that God is right next to me at my right hand because of Jesus. He is present with me. And therefore, we we have no basis. We have no orientation, do we? When we're going 75 miles, right? Like the on-ramp, like walk out the front door and there's the on-ramp, right? We're off. And then we wonder why we're so overcome with anxiety and fear and lust and pride and greed when we haven't even taken the time to set God before us, to set this reality before us, to to align ourselves with what the Word has revealed to us, God has revealed so graciously in His Word. How does the reality of God converge with the reality of your needs? Here's a super practical suggestion. This may sound really dumb to you, but... I think it's very, very helpful. I've done this throughout my life, different times. And I just started it again. Take your smartphone or your watch. Set an hourly chime. On your phone, set a first morning alarm. Then choose always on. Set your snooze to 60 seconds. Or sorry, 60 minutes. So the first alarm goes off on your smartphone. Set it to vibrate. And every time that goes off, right, throughout your day, just hit, hit the snooze 60 minutes, That it'll become an hourly reminder for you. And every time that goes off, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, even if you can't turn it off and it's just buzzing in your back pocket or in your purse, you just stop and you tell yourself, you stop and say, God is in this place. God is in this place. He is with me. You are here Father, with me now. And you love me. You're standing with me. You are my God. I tell you, it will change your life. Because we're so busy and we're so distracted that if we would just take once an hour and stop and realign ourselves with that truth of God's Word, of what He said to us, you will be you will, you will find it astonishing how it changes your perspective on what you're doing. I've been talking to people, right? And all of a sudden that, you know, in the old days I would wear a wristwatch and the hourly chime would go off and that wasn't strange. A lot of people had like a little hourly beep-beep or whatever. I was talking to people, that hourly chime went off And as I thought about the presence of God, I promise you, I tell you this, the Holy Spirit gave me the eyes of Jesus to see that person. It switched from, what can I get from this person? Or, when is this conversation going to be over? I'm tired of it. Or, what, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm thinking about two hours ahead, what I, what I should be doing, and not giving any attention to an image-bearer of God standing in front of me. And that hourly chime went off, and I was realigned with the reality that there's a God in heaven who made all people, who calls me to put the priorities of Jesus, spiritual investment in the lives of others, before any of my agenda... And it realigned me, and I felt, in the same exact moment, conviction, refreshing, empowerment, and encouragement to love that person who was standing in front of me. It could be in moments of temptation; that alarm goes off, boop. Right. The point is not the alarm or you know the, the on your phone or the hourly chime. It's learning the discipline of practicing the presence of God. Building it into the rhythms of your life. We will give ourselves to all sorts of silly, stupid, trivial things, won't we? And allow those things to build into the rhythms of our life. And they do give us nothing lasting. They make no impact in our lives. But why won't we give ourselves? Even through a simple practice like that, or you come up with whatever you think is helpful for you, give yourself to that and let it shape the rhythms of your life. Truly walk with God. I have set Yahweh always before me. The everywhere and ever real presence of God is not simply a theological fact to be acknowledged. You should acknowledge it. It's true. God is everywhere. He is everywhere present. As David makes clear though here in Psalm 16, it is a theological reality to be enjoyed as well. You should enjoy the reality that God is everywhere and specifically He is with you. He is present with you wherever you are. The question is often asked to check, kind of check yourself and take a spiritual, take your spiritual temperature. The question is often asked, who are you when no one else is looking? Who are you really when no one else is looking? Problem with that question is God is always looking. God is always with you. He sees you at all times. He is always present. But it is a theological reality, yes, to be sobered by, but to be enjoyed by everyone who knows and loves God. And we have such a powerful reminder that God has given us here in verse 10 about why we even love God. Why do we even love God? First John 4, because He first loved us we love because he first loved us and that points us to a beautiful story doesn't it verse 10 connects us with that here in acts chapter 2 verse 27 acts 227 and acts chapter 13 verse 35 acts 1335 Two different sermons by two different guys in the books of Acts, Peter and Paul, both of them declare that Psalm 16, verse 10, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You will not abandon my my soul to the grave. You will not allow your holy one to see corruption. Peter and Paul both reference that Psalm and say, this was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. For while David eventually died and he himself was buried and is still buried, God did not abandon Jesus to the grave. That's a good hallelujah point if you want to say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah, amen. Amen. He did not abandon Jesus to the grave, did he? He did not. Instead, He raised Him up from the dead. And that is part of that beautiful gospel story. And because of this ultimate fulfillment by Jesus, through Jesus, you and I can begin to experience the ultimate fulfillment of every blessing David describes in this psalm. Reassurance, guidance, joy, and just keep going down the list. I say we begin to experience the ultimate fulfillment because we see it in a mere dimly. Right? I have not yet become perfect. I have not yet obtained the prize, but I press on, says Paul. There's a process happening in you. And the ultimate fulfillment will be one day when Christ returns. And yet we have a taste of the kingdom of God, don't we? We live in this beautiful taste, in this feast of the beginnings of the the kingdom of God. These are the amazing, incomparable appetizers, I guess, of the feast that's coming one day. We are getting it already. But it's made possible, of course, by Jesus. And Jesus is the one who reassured us in this way. In Matthew 28, verse 20, He said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is present with us. Jesus is at our right hand. Because He's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Amen? Because He's with us, He's present with us, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Amen? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In light of Him and through Him, Brothers and sisters, let us devote ourselves to daily and sincerely practicing the presence of our triune three-in-one God. Amen? Let's pray for one another in that regard.